welcome to Pod Academy. This lecture by Dr. Nina Power on masculinity is part of the 2019 IF Project lecture series, Thinking Between the Lines, Truth, Lies and Fiction in an Age of Populism. In this lecture, Nina Power explores some of the issues in her book, What Do Men Want? What do men want? Which is um, an obvious sort of jokey reference to Freud's question, Vasfeldus Vibe, which is like, what does woman want? Which which Freud famously couldn't answer. So I quite like doing these parodic titles by like famous men or like famous quotes by men, and then sort of reversing them. Um, so that's why it's called What do men want? But actually, the question of desire became really really central. So it was really quite an interesting way of thinking about what male desire is and I don't just mean kind of sexual desire but desire in a, in a very broad sense like what does it mean to be a good man for example which is not necessarily something that seems very obvious today because there's there's obviously quite a lot of popular media critique of men right if you think about all of the discussions around so-called toxic masculinity the idea that there's something kind of wrong with the way in which men behave all of these kind of often online and popular discussions around man-spreading and mansplaining and these kinds of things. And I, and I think the point maybe about some of those sort of popular criticisms of supposedly masculine behaviour is not necessarily that there isn't some truth to some of it or that they're not necessarily things that we, uh, we wouldn't notice sometimes, but that there's a kind of uh, a presupposition behind a lot of the critique of masculinity which is A, that there is no, therefore, no good masculinity, which is very interesting in relation to figures like Jordan Peterson, who's very kind of popular and important, quite you know controversial figure in some ways, slightly strange, Jungian, patriarchal man, you know, there's 12 rules, and but actually extremely popular. And there's something to be diagnosed in why Peterson is very, very attractive to a certain kind of young man and indeed young woman to some extent as well and I went to see Jordan Peterson speak at the O2 arena this massive arena it's almost full and there were lots of kind of very nicely dressed young people there a lot of men but also women with men with their girlfriends and it really struck me that that the Peterson and figures like that do offer something right they offer a structure you know they basically uh, go against a certain kind of victim narrative and, and he's saying things like tidy your room you know and okay we can laugh at that we can say like this is very simplistic or stand with your shoulders straight or try not to lie and these are very basic kind of like moral injunctions or kind of practical pragmatic injunctions and you can see Peterson as a kind of like slightly strange uh, patriarchal figure like he's a kind of 50s patriarch also in the way he dresses and appears um, and there's a kind of question I think about the missing role of like a certain image of a father figure because the patriarch um, you know obviously we talk, talk about patriarchy but the patriarch in the bible of you know figures like Abraham I mean they're kind of like father figures they're, they're protectors as well as those who kind of you know tell you what to do in a certain way so the patriarch you wouldn't it might have some kind of very negative connotations but also the patriarch is the one who takes responsibility and there's a kind of quite Kantian or philosophical question about what it means to actually be a moral agent, to be responsible. And we sometimes talk about living in a quite infantile age. Uh, and there's a very interesting German theorist called Mitterschlick who wrote a book called Society Without the Father. 
And he argues that we live in an age in which the father has sort of become displaced. And you can think about Freud for this as well. But that, in a sense, there is no patriarch. Despite these kind of endless discussions about patriarchy and kind of toxic masculinity, but actually those sort of discussions are perhaps only possible when there has been a certain collapse of a certain kind of father figure, whether we're thinking about that in terms of an Oedipal family situation or more broadly. Obviously, this is com- complicated when we look at figures like Trump and Putin. I mean, these are kind of... Of Trump perhaps is kind of like an obscene father, like the father who kind of enjoys everything in a certain way. And there's something kind of very uh, archaic about Trump as this sort of sovereign, the one who kind of indulges all the pleasures that other people can't have. Um, and there is a kind of question about whether there is sometimes a resurgence of a sort of political father figure, but are they kind of postmodern fathers in some way? What, what does that mean? And Mitterschlick, this German theorist writing in the 60s and 70s, is worried, on the one hand, quite reasonably about authoritarianism, you know, and the, and the trying to stop the rise of a kind of dominant masculine political figure in, like, you know, Hitler would be the obvious example, but also Stalin, you know, these authoritarian men, you know, how do we move beyond that desire for a cult of personality, the man, the dictator, you know, the Führer, let's say, and he says, okay, but the, the alternative is more, a more horizontal society, in fact, in which men and women are more like brothers and sisters. So he says that actually, once you kind of get rid of the father figure, you actually have a much more competitive society in which everyone is more or less uh, competing. And I think in the 20th century, we can kind of also see this with certain, the mass inclusion of women into the workforce after World War II in most Western countries. We live in a very co-terminus, um, a, a co-sexual society. You know, we, men and women are with each other all the time, at work, at home, if you're in a heterosexual relationship. But in a general you know, way, men and women encounter each other, like, a lot. You know, we live in very, very mixed modern societies. And so the book largely became not a book about heterosexuality, but about heterosociality which is to say how men and women interact like on a daily basis. And so the question of what it means to be a mature, what it means to be an adult <laughs> and what it means to be a good man became very very important like is it possible to be a good man today what would that mean given all of these kind of criticisms of men these attacks on masculinity as ways of performing maleness um, you know and obviously this is also being written in the wake of me too and this kind of like almost historical reckoning with certain forms of behaviour and perhaps a way of like a certain point of saying, well, we don't want as a society to proceed along these lines anymore. Mm-hmm. But again, this also comes with certain kind of other questions. So the question like people used to meet their spouses at work, for example, this is a really common place where people would meet someone they went out with. Um, and if you move to a situation in which, you know, there's no physical or emotional contact with people at work or their penalties for doing so are very severe or indeed you kind of internalise rules about how to behave that, that wouldn't cross any boundaries, you know, then you are indeed also cutting off certain other possibilities. And the same would go more generally for questions of touch. The fear around touch is very, very extreme at the moment. People are very worried that a touch will be misinterpreted as a sexual touch. So there becomes all these kind of prohibitions 
and then Western countries in particular become very, very, very paranoid about what touch means. And I'd also talk about this in the book. And there's also this kind of regulation, perhaps, or let's say compartmentalisation of dating. So the whole rise of dating apps, which puts that aspect of male-female or you know human interaction in a certain place. It's like the algorithm will tell you who you can go out with. Okay, and I personally find this rather terrifying. I'm very into um, Illich and a certain critique of technology, and I'm very, very anxious, as many people are, I think, about the way in which technology is kind of conditioning and determining the possibilities for our, our lives. And, and we know that, therefore, in kind of romantic or even social or friendly relations, the, the algorithm of technology is having kind of this very big effect but one thing that might mean is that there is no longer any risky encounter you know so you're not going to flirt with somebody randomly in a cafe because well there's an app for that if you want to go on a date you're not going to talk to some random stranger and so I think there's a kind of like (laughs) anti-poetic dimension to a lot of contemporary interaction and I suppose one thing about the idea of the horizontal competitive society is that this implies that we're kind of living in a sort of zero-sum game so the idea that if somebody wins, someone else must lose, that there is, in a sense, a finite amount of something. And what that something is, we might call power. But this is a very vague and powerful word in and of itself. So the one idea would be, um, like, if men gain something, then women lose, or if women gain something, men lose. And there is no doubt that there is a great deal of resentment around you know, there is a great deal of uh, female resentment against men or certain men, and there is a great deal of male resentment against women for certain things as well. And what I was interested in is putting these two forms of resentment side by side and in a way saying, well, what is the, what is the nature of this resentment? What is the content of this resentment? Because I think there's, there's a kind of popular tendency, let's say, when men, um, men's rights activists, for example, so I looked obviously a lot at these sort of movements, a lot of which are online, a lot of which are in North America, but obviously in Britain as well, we have um, Fathers for Justice who are campaigning around access to children in the wake of divorce settlements, you know, and, and so a lot of male complaints are around things like men do more dangerous work, men are more likely to die at work, the male suicide rate is very high. It is true that all forms of violence are suffered by men more than others, but usually because it's men committing violence against other men before they commit violence against women. Things like access to to children, this uh, supposed desire that men must behave responsibly, must pay for and look after women, but then don't get any kind of benefit for it, or that they lose out in divorce settlements. So there there is content to some of these claims, And at one extreme, you have a kind of male separatist movement, which I find really fascinating. So there's a group of men called Men Going Their Own Way, MGTOW for short. And MGTOW are basically a group of men who've kind of, in their mind, they've seen through the sort of, um, the fantasy that's being pushed, where men have to kind of go on dates with women, pay for them, you know, and it's much easier for women. So one of the kind of grounding fantasies of a lot of, Um, aggrieved men is that it's much easier for women to get sex than it is for men to get sex and this is behind the sort of um, idea of the incel the involuntary celibate who you probably heard about I mean I I don't know how much you sort of know about all these yeah probably quite a bit but so the involuntary celibate I mean it's actually a term that a woman came up with 
Um, but the idea that it's usually largely used by young men online, you know, sometimes in a jokey way, and there's a kind of big question about how jokey a lot of the the stuff online is, uh, particularly some of the more misogynist stuff, is a very, very tricky question, actually, about how we read some of the kind of male, young male output online. And this touches on questions about the alt-right and memes and, and so on as well, which you probably talked about um, maybe well, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of question about pop, you know, the popular, the humorous online. You know, what does, where do those things reside in a certain way, and how that, how does that play out in terms of left and right um, politics? So, one thing I looked at as well were certain terms that are very dominant. I'll come back to MGTOW in a minute because they are fascinating. But so there's this idea of hypergamy, which is this idea that women will always marry up or they will always mate up, which is to say that women are always looking for the best man. So this is a very, very guiding axiom on the sort of uh, in men's rights activism. And it's taken from evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology. And what I kind of want to do in the book is to like let people know that there are men who think who see the world in this way. And actually, what does it mean if we start from a discussion of that? Because I think a lot of women particularly don't know that a lot of men think in this way. So I look at uh, the pickup artist community, which is now quite old. So it started with Neil Strauss and the game uh, quite a long time ago, so 20 some years ago. And these are sort of techniques, right, for men to pick up women. So they often involve saying something negative and saying something positive at the same time in order to sort of like pique a woman's interest. But again, there's been a shift, obviously, online. It used to be that men would have to go to bars and clubs and run the risk of being punched or having a drink thrown in their face in order to attempt these sort of pick-up techniques. Uh, and now it's sort of done through, through apps in a way. So there's a certain like loss of the pick-up <laughs> artistry in a way. And there's a kind of question... A slightly sad question, actually, in the back of some of the pickup artist stuff, which is really about what is it for? Is it just to pick women up to have sex with? In which case, you're using psychological techniques just to get laid, and then what if it became a bit more serious? At some point, would you have to turn around and say, "Oh, you know what? I, I read all these techniques in a book, and that's how I got you to sleep with me." There's this kind of moment of honesty that you, it's going to be a problem, right? And so a lot of the pickup artists from the first generation realised this, and then they started thinking about, well, how do we actually, do we actually want proper relationships? You know, are we actually interested not just in casual sex? Okay, we've worked out we can do that, we can trick some women, as it were, into having sex with, with us. Or how do we actually parlay that into a more serious relationship? So a lot of them kind of have a crisis and struggle with this. And there's been a very interesting shift. Um, there's a very famous uh, Iranian pickup artist called Rushvi, who's American-Iranian, and he sort of did all these books about how he travelled around the world, how to pick up Romanian girls, how to pick up Hungarian girls, how to pick up British girls, whatever. Like he did this whole sort of geographical map of male pickup desire in a way. And he's become religious. He's suddenly become, like Kanye, extremely religious. And there's a very, very interesting shift of the pickup artist men in their 40s who suddenly actually turned around and, and I don't know, to them, they've realised or they, they feel that their previous way of seeing women and seeing the world is actually, you know, incredibly destructive and hollow. It's quite an interesting moment in the pick-up artist community where a lot of men are playing with actually more traditional forms of, of relating. And, and I think we can see these as responses to a certain kind of capitalist or late capitalist compact, which is to do with 
how men and women are supposed to meet, how this... And it, there is a lot of uncertainty, I think, from both men and women. You know, are men, young men and women... Should one sort of sleep with lots of people in order to... Because it's possible, because you don't have to get married to the farmer down the road. But, but it's still very confused. There's a lot of, like, confusion. And I think a lot of these plays out often in university campuses. There's lots of discussions in America around sex on campus. is very, very contentious issue. So just to go back to MGTOW for a minute, the men going their own way. So for, for some men... They decided that this whole game, they've seen through the illusion, as it were, the supposed red pill, where you understand how things actually work, right? So the red pill is a metaphor, obviously taken from the Matrix, but it's very common in the sort of men's rights activists and alt-right sort of sphere. It's kind of like, they use it as a way of saying, well, I've seen through the first layer of illusion, if you like. So a lot of red pill men would say that actually women have it easier today, which is one of their suggestions, which... Most women and most feminists today would absolutely disagree with. So I have this interesting problem of how to put together these two claims, one of which would be women are struggling or, you know, in different ways or they're being treated poorly, sexually and emotionally and and economically on the one hand. And then on the other hand, men say, well, women have it easier, actually, that we live in a women's women's world rather than a men's world, which goes back to the kind of competitive um, horizontality question. So MGTOW... These men are male separatists, and I, I compare them to the kind of 70s political lesbian, often lesbian separatist movement that, that existed among some of the feminist groups, where women, a very small number of women, it wasn't part of the, you know, it wasn't the mainstream feminist movement in the 70s, but wanted to live in a way without men, right? So what does it mean to live in patriarchy, as they would see it, you know, and there's a question about what we mean by patriarchy, how patriarchy is kind of plays out in an everyday way. Can you live se- can you live without the other sex, basically, is the question. Mm-hmm. That's that so that's one of the big questions of the book. And obviously we can think about nunneries and monasteries, and if you think about somewhere like Mount Athos uh, in Greece, a very interesting place. It's a male only island, it's a religious Orthodox community, and there are no women on the island, and they're not even any female animals on the island, apart from insects, because they couldn't get rid of female insects, but they don't have any <laughs> female uh, mammals. And, but it's a, it's a very, very interesting idea, you know, and I know men have, obviously I can't go there, but men have gone there, you know, and there are, there's like, there are men there who've never seen a woman in their life, and this is quite, quite interesting, very unusual, right, because of course we do live in a mixed society, and you know, if you walk around, you go to a shop, you see, you know, you see people, we do live in a heterosocial world, right, just what I, you know, this is my starting point in a way, and so to actually try to live separately from the opposite sex, if you're not a monk or a nun, let's say, but you're just a guy, you know, you're a man, you feel that dating is, like, not good for you, maybe you've tried it and you, you know, you haven't, it hasn't turned into a relationship, and so they use stats like uh, 60% of men have never, historically have never reproduced, which is quite an interesting claim. And the way they make this claim is to say, well, look, look how many men, young men die in war historically. And war, obviously, has been brutal for men. I mean, like, you know, this is, it's still brutal for men. Men die in war. That's what war is. And so they say, look, if you look back, men have not reproduced, 60% of men are not reproduced and they have heroes like Tesla and Beethoven and all these men who didn't have children, I think Beethoven, I don't know but they, they look at these kind of famous men who never got married and never had children and sort of take, say look there's more to life than dating a woman, you know, that actually 
men doing stuff on their own is actually fulfilling. And, and so they're not homosexual, but they are kind of homosocial, let's say, this, this movement of men going their own way. And some of it does tip into a certain kind of bitterness. There's no doubt about it. There is a lot of resentment towards women that women are perceived to be these like hypergamous, that is to say that they want the best man and that, you know, there is... So a lot of the language in the manosphere, so-called, will use um, alpha and beta, you know, that there are alpha men and beta men or chads and virgins or whatever. So they, they often have like quite black and white view of masculinity as well, so that there are kind of men who win and there are men who lose. And in a way, the incel movement then is a kind of... can be seen as a sort of like attempt to make an identity out of a kind of sexual loss, if you like, you know, to assume the role of someone who doesn't get laid in a certain way. And I would say the novels of uh, Michelle Welbeck, if you've read those, are, are really about this question in a lot of ways, which is to say the profound unfairness, of injustice of desire. Desire is unfair. That, that is to say some people will be much more desirable than others. That if you're a communist and you're, you're interested in like equality and redistribution, desire becomes a big problem because how are you going to redistribute desire to make it fair? Right? Because not everyone is equally attractive, not everyone is going to get the same amount of sex or whatever, you know, or attention. So there is desire, you know, from a psychoanalytic point of view or even just a kind of uh, another way of posing the question becomes a big problem. And so when I asked men, I did a kind of anecdotal thing when I, where I, I asked as many men as I could think of, what do you want? Like, what do men want? To get an answer, to see what they would say. And it was quite an interesting range of responses. So some men would say, oh, why are you asking me? I don't know. That was the usual response. Or tell me when you find out, was the other one. And some, one man got very annoyed and said, like, why? You can't ask me that. You're a woman. You don't know anything about men this kind of thing, which, which I kind of agree with at the beginning of the book, you know, what does it mean for me to write a book about men? It's quite an interesting question. You know, if a woman was writing a book, well, I mean, I wrote a feminist book, as it were, and men historically, of course, have written books about women, right? <laughs> so it's a kind of, again, like a sort of playful reversal. But sometimes men would say things like, oh, a beer, or pussy, or uh, a shed of my own, <laughs> or to hang out with my male friends, or to be left alone. <laughs> and all these sorts of slightly, like, actually quite removed um, responses. But I think there is a kind of general sense in which men, that, but also everybody, doesn't know what they want. To actually be posed this question is actually quite provocation, quite a difficult thing to answer. Which is why I started, I start the book by thinking about what it would mean to be a good, a good man, then, in a way. And because... Precisely that seems to be what's difficult today. You know, for a lot and a lot of young men they they want male role models, it's clear. And there is a kind of desire for like older male mentorship. Uh, whether it be in sort of sports or life or you know, hence again the sort of popularity of figures like Peterson who at least hold out the promise that there is a sort of patriarchal order or there is a patriarch, there is a way of doing things. You know, that it's not just a kind of like horizontal chaos uh, in a certain sense. And yeah, and so I, I go, it gets kind of quite bleak. Like there are, there are parts of the book which are very bleak because actually going into the detail and the substance of male complaints and to take it seriously, not just to dismiss it and not just to say, 
oh, men have nothing to moan about, it's a man's world, which would be a kind of usual way of perhaps putting to one side these, these things, but actually to take seriously some of the fears around male violence, for example, and to, to think about why um, there is this kind of both existence and fear of this violence, and, and what does it mean for men in a way to think of themselves as a group of people. Because I, I think, I mean, maybe this, this is a little bit speculative, but if you're a woman, it's often, I think, <laughs> this is, I mean, de Beauvoir's point in a certain way, but you're often treated as a group, in a certain way, as, a, as the representative of a group. Mm. Like, oh, she's a, this kind of woman, or she's a good woman. And I think women also, perhaps, in ter- this is a bit controversial, but perhaps internalise a sense in which they are related to other women negatively or positively, and you're a sort of bearer of a particular kind of identity. Whereas I think it might be easier, and we can discuss this in the questions, for men in the first place to think of themselves as an individual. You know, oh, it's just me. And then perhaps secondarily, I'm a man. I don't know. There, there's something about this kind of question about whether you, what level of belonging to a group people feel, whether one feels an identity with one's sex, I suppose. That's, that's maybe the question I'm trying to point to here which is like do men think of themselves as men and what would it mean therefore to think of oneself as part of a category that would also include let's say quite violent men and how do men who are not violent relate to men who are violent let's say like do they feel a responsibility to or for them you know are they part of the same type of person you know and so I kind of want to ask those kinds of questions about identity but it's not kind of identity in the way that we might more commonly think about it today it's kind of the the, what does it mean to belong to a sex class you know which is a second wave feminist way of understanding what it means to be part of both a sex and a class you know to be treated uh, as a group so I'm interested in that kind of male uh, grouping or that male self-conception um, I discuss trans men in the book. I mean, it's a very controversial issue, and I've been in trouble personally for, for saying that we should have a more rational discussion about it in general. So what I try to do... I, I've read, I read quite a few trans men's um, autobiographies. So what I was interested in in those... Uh, so Charlie Kiss writes one, for example, called A New Man. And I'm, what I'm very interested in those is what masculinity means to the trans men. So, you know, women who... And, and Charlie Kiss, you know, was a, was a, a, a lesbian who was very involved in uh, Greenham Common. You know, and says, look, I was a woman, I was a lesbian, you know, and I wanted to become a man. And talks about it like this. So Charlie Kiss doesn't say, I was always a man. You know, which is slightly different from some of the narrative today, which is to say, oh, I was always, you know, a boy or a girl, or I was always a man or woman. Charlie Kiss says, no, I was a woman and I was a lesbian and now I'm a man. And it, it's partly to do, and, and talks very, very movingly, actually, about the differences in how uh, Kiss is treated as a man. Says that um, people are a lot less kind to you as a man. And Kiss re- passes, right? So is treated as a man for all intents and purposes. People are, are not interested in your emotions as much. She said when she was a woman... She, people would listen to her more when she was upset. When she's a man, now, he, now he's a man, people don't. Don't take his emotions seriously. And I thought this is really striking. So I talk about this quite a lot. And there's other ones by Thomas Baum and others. And a lot of it is to do with not wanting to be perceived to be a victim or to be weak. 
So for the, for a lot of the trans men, it's about escaping a certain almost like object victim position. That's in a way the only way I do address it. I though I do look at some trans women's tweets and claims where they say things like, um, "I just want to escape masculinity." That they find masculinity and the expectation of masculinity too much of a burden. And there's one tweet that's by quite a high-profile trans woman that says, I can't be masculine under Trump. This is too horrible. I've got to escape masculinity, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so I look a little bit about that. But, but what I'm interested in there is, is, is the definition of what, what masculinity is, I suppose. What people mm-hmm. think it is that they want or what they don't want, basically. Like, what is this thing? You know, because it's very unclear. I mean, we, we do talk about masculinity all the time and, and femininity to some extent. You know, and we sort of have a rough idea what it means. But actually, the ways in which these are, like, felt as currents or pressures are really complicated. And I look also at ideas of uh, manabuns, which are, like, uh, male-only groups. And there's also been a really long-running uh, male, male group called Achilles <coughs> Heel in London, which has been going since the 70s, which is like, where it was sort of based on uh, 70s feminist consciousness raising groups, but for men. So men can come and discuss feelings and thoughts that they might not otherwise be able to, to do or that they felt were not able to be expressed more generally. And that, that question of male emotion, so not just male desire, but also how do men feel, I suppose, is a big part of it because... Often, you know, there's this idea that perhaps one of the only emotions that men are sort of socially allowed to express is anger. But anger isn't really thought of as an emotion, even though it is, sort of thing. So there's a kind of question about the range of emotions. Are men, men sometimes feel like dismissed, perhaps, or undermined if they sort of express different kinds of emotions? There's obviously within the question of masculinity the idea of the question of stereotypes. You know, what does it mean to actually live up to uh, certain expectations? Do people, how do people internalise stereotypes, particularly children, if you're more or less girly or, or boyish or whatever? Has that actually opened up? You know, the second wave feminist project was in a way to explode gender, to get rid of it, to get rid of the stereotypes and the pressure of stereotypes so that everybody could be more or less, more or less who they wanted to be. And I like historically feel like a great beneficiary of that trickle-down second-wave feminist idea that, boy, that both boys and girls could be, in a way, anything. You know, that it didn't matter. Like, you know, boys could wear supposedly girl clothes and girls could wear boy clothes, you know, this kind of thing. And that this is a kind of, you know, there's a quite sort of difficult question about whether there have been progress or regression on gender roles today. You know, like, actually, is there more pressure now to conform to particular gender roles, but maybe in a slightly stranger and more different, a different way. Why has gender perhaps become so important, we might say? Why has identity on that level actually become like quite a dominant narrative? Why don't we focus instead on character or personality or you know, even what it means to be good, for example? And I think that kind of the shift of lots of the pickup artists, the men who spent their lives, you know, chasing women to, to God, they call it the God pill. So you move from like the red pill through the black pill. The black pill is the nihilist pill. The black pill is where you really see things as, as they are, which is another way that they discuss things online, to the God pill, right? So there's this kind of, also this kind of pharmacological way of perceiving the world as well. Like you take a pill, you know, metaphorically, 
and you see things differently. So I'm, I'm very interested in that kind of shift towards a kind of a, a deeper sort of spirituality, actually. And, and even when Peterson, uh, Jordan Peterson, talks about Jung and, you, you know, Jung's idea of the anima and the animus, and, and both Freud and Jung ha- suggest that we both contain kind of masculine and feminine characteristics. Freud says that we're fundamentally bisexual. By that, he doesn't mean that we want to have sex with men and women, but that we are fundamentally all constituted by masculine and feminine traits. And that, in a sense, nobody is 100% masculine, nobody is 100% feminine, uh, which is kind of quite a you know, more interesting claim. And, and Jung would say, well, for men, let's say, to think about their feminine side is actually like a very important thing to do, to confront one's inner feminine, let's say and for women to confront one's inner masculine side, right? So I want to say, I want to go back in a certain way to some of those kind of more cosmic claims about a certain kind of bisexual, you know, constitutive masculine-feminine being that we have, which again is slightly, um, will put me slightly at odds with certain kind of contemporary narratives, for sure. But my overall aim is, is actually as a project of conciliate, reconciliation, because I want to say that men and women do get along, that this is like an everyday experience that we have in which we are heterosocial, which is to say we have loads of... Unless you're a, a separatist and you live on a compound, which most people don't, most people live in the world in which there are men and women all the time. You know, we are friends with each other, we might go out with each other. Even if we're um, homosexual sexually, we still have heterosocial interactions. So, you know, I'm, and, and I'm not suggesting there are kind of you know, there's a normative way, you know, that people must behave in a certain way. It's not a kind of dictatorial book like that at all. It's more kind of, well, how do we exist in the first place together? What's positive about these interactions? Do we really have so much resentment towards one another? And I think a lot of this is pushed by a kind of media that's very interested, you know, maybe this goes to the course, in, pers- in pursuing this resentful uh, zero-sum game idea that actually we're in competition with one, an- one another, and that we must, I don't know, punish women or punish men as a group somehow when we feel that someone is getting something, whether it's enjoyment or money or power, that we want. So I want to move away from that competitive logic, which is a very capitalist logic, it's a very, you know, non-spiritual logic, actually, like a very closed-minded, quantitative logic. But it does still leave open the question of power, because... In a way, of course, we, we might want to say, well, what about questions of representation? Don't we want equal male-female representation in politics, in business, and so on? And in, in a way, I don't kind of answer that because my, my criticism is of like, the system as a whole. In a way, I want to say we should all be doing a lot less and spending a lot more time talking to each other because that's actually much more interesting. So I basically propose, in a sense, more playfulness so the kind of this idea that we're actually fundamentally like ludic or playful um, creatures, that human beings are actually um, that this is one sort of aspect of our being, social being, that is often cut off or we don't really uh, understand. And and this would be, you know, so the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, have at least eight words for love, as we know, and and one of these these forms of love is is the ludic, is the playful, and that to me could also include like male female friendships. You know, and I spoke to a lot of people about having close male and female friendships because I think there's still this very dominant idea that you men and women can't be friends or the question of sex will always rear its head if you're heterosexual, which may or may not be true to some extent, but 
I've spoken to so many people whose best friend, you know, is a member, you know, the opposite sex, and they may or may not have had a relationship at some point. But there is that kind of importance for a lot of people of uh, a mixed sexed friendship, or you know, multi- multiply. So I wanted also to acknowledge that and talk about that in a way because it seems that's often not really discussed in favour of talking about heterosexual or romantic relations. You know, that I wanted to actually defend a kind of almost like platonic friendship between men and women as a reality, but also as a possibility for a kind of period of reconciliation following Me Too, following these kind of historical upheavals. Because it's sort of thinking about, well, what happens next in a way? You know, are we going to get stuck in this situation where we're blaming the other sex for something um, it's a very easy thing to do. And I, so I look at some of the really virulent online sort of campaigns. So there was like a hashtag a few years ago that was like, kill all men, which was ob- obviously you could say was a sort of joke. Like, oh, OK, of course, we don't really mean kill all men. But, you know, it's a way of saying, look, we're very angry with men for various, you know, various things, violence against women, sexual violence and so on. And, of course, it's an extreme and polemical statement right kill all men it's a very brutal statement and and it was kind of interesting at that time to see various sort of male feminists for example defending the use of the hashtag saying that it made them feel uncomfortable but that they sort of understood and other people kind of reacting very badly to it I think that kind of language is worth kind of investigating in a certain way like we have to understand what's going on with those forms of polemical resentment, you know, that are sort of semi-jokey, but also kind of unpleasant. And especially when we're also thinking about misogyny online and various forms of, you know, quite sort of violent, jokey claims about women as well, right? So there is that in the background as well. There's also discussion about uh, pornography. And I look at this movement called NoFap, which is... um, FAP is masturbation, so NoFap is a kind of male movement, overwhelmingly male movement, in which young men, primarily, who've been addicted to pornography, because obviously online, you know, it's insane, free, everywhere, blah, 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 and a lot, quite a lot of young men get very, very hooked on it, and then at a certain point they realise that sort of dopamine circuits have been kind of completely dominated, and, and we know that sort of porn has these sort of quite negative effects on actually having actual normal sexual relations, if you're too obsessed with porn... And so often people get these conditions like um, like uh, the death grip, where you masturbate so much you lose all sensitivity uh, in your penis and things like this. So there is a kind of movement to get run by men, to get young men to stop watching porn, and it's called NoFap. Um, and it's actually it's very, very, very interesting. And it, again, it's one of these sorts of men's groups things um, that kind of gives you an insight into some of the psychology around what it means to be a man and, and some there are lots of different aspects of it so um, along sort of with the pickup artists many of whom get very into the gym as well and gym culture is a massive massive thing uh, as well and again this goes to a certain kind of homosociality so it's not a gay uh, thing but lots of men sometimes start out bodybuilding because they want to be pickup artists so they want to be as fit as they can be to pick up women but then they actually just realize that they like hanging out in the gym with other men <laughs> more more than they like going on dates so there is actually like this very like very very interesting sort of shift to a sort of men men only culture um, and the, the no fat movement is a bit like this as well 
So it's men actually genuinely sort of helping and encouraging other people to stop, to give up this thing that they personally feel is bad for them at this time, right? So they go on like 30 day, no, no porn, no masturbation things. And often it is with a view to, have, to establishing more normal relationships with women. But other times it becomes like a, a sort of, um, oh, I don't know, like a, an ascetic experience, all of its, of its own in a certain way. And, and so some men talk about withholding their seed as a form of like energetics, you know, that they feel less depleted and it becomes a kind of a slightly mystical element to some of it um, as well. And often that there's a slight overlap with a certain kind of right-wing idea of a kind of uh, withholding oneself, you know, that one is sort of upright and strong and, and this kind of thing. I also look a little bit at uh, incest porn to talk about the, society, the horizontal society and what does it mean when people have to live in the same house. Um, and there's been a huge rise in incest pornography, which is sort of... Obviously, it's not actual incest because it's, that's taboo. It's the you know the fundamental social taboo, but it's usually like the stepmother. And of course, pe- people in pornography are not related to one another, right? So it's easy to to say that they're related, but they're not. And they, they usually get out by saying it's the stepmother or stepsister or whatever. And I look at this in the context, like an economic context of proximity and the sort of lack of availability of opportunities for uh, younger generations, sort of millennials and so on, to move out, right? So to have their own house, to, to fulfil these kind of usual hoops of uh, adulthood. You know, how it, like, it goes to the good man question. How is it possible to be an adult? How is it possible to be a good man today when on the one hand you're getting attacked for all your masculinity and then on the other you can't be an adult anyway because you're kind of trapped in this sort of infantilizing economic situation. And incest porn I read is then a way of trying to like libidinize in a horrible way your stuck situation, you know, because you're kind of trapped in this generational loop. Uh, there's a very interesting writer yeah. called HP Zero Lovecraft, who's an anonymous young man, and he writes about the peculiar aloneness of the male, and he says there's a kind of aloneness that the young man feels that a young woman will never feel. Mm-hmm. And it, you can see it in books like, I don't know, Camus' The Outsider or lots of existentialist literature. There is an idea of the male, like male aloneness, which is so profound that you're kind of alone in the universe and that you're alone against the universe in a certain way. And, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that women can't feel profoundly alone. I know I do all the time, <laughs> in a nice way. I enjoy it. I've come to embrace it. But, it's, but there is a kind of very interesting question that sort of phrase, I think, which is to do with, like, an existential experience of what mm-hmm. it means to, you know, do, do men, young men perhaps in particular, feel a certain kind of, like, cosmic or universal existential pressure that is felt very in a very, very singular and alone way. Um, and I guess towards the end of the book, then I look, just to finish, I look very seriously at the question of male suicide and because this is an absolutely massive issue uh, for men. It's like the leading cause of death of, of men under 45 in the UK. And it's partly tied up, um, it seems to me, with these kind of uh, questions of shame around expressing one's feelings, uh, emotions, um, a lot of the research will talk about that, but also about a shame around not having supposedly succeeded in life um, and a kind of feeling of failure. Now, obviously suicide is a very, very complicated issue, why anyone does it in the end. But to take seriously that kind of question then, what does it mean for men to actually be this sad in this large numbers really and, and to try to sort of diagnose it and to 
to think about that. So the book finishes in this quite sort of sombre way, really, thinking about dead men, actually, and, and then also kind of historically uh, the question of, of war and, and the sacrifice of men, in a way, to keep society going, as it were. And, I mean, one thing that's been quite difficult to balance, I suppose, is to try to to, to keep hold of the... The, the sadnesses, as it were, on both sides, you know, the sadnesses of women about men and the sadnesses of men about themselves, but also about women, and to sort of try to take them seriously, like, at the same time, to, to work out not who's right and who's wrong, because it's not about that, because these are real feelings, you know, people really do feel these things, and you can't really sort of say your feelings are wrong in a certain sense. You can say, well, you know, is it really like this for you, and... But is, is society really like this? And so, so something like patriarchy as a concept is quite difficult to pin down in the everyday sense. You know, when we talk about we live in a patriarchy, well, are we talking about a sort of agricultural setup in which, you know, primogeniture ensures that property goes to the firstborn son? The more historical definition of patriarchy, you know, are we talking about men taking responsibility? For themselves and for their wives and children, let's say, do women want that? Is there a, has there been a kind of shift actually away from that sort of idea of the, the the man as protector? Clearly, we have to say, yeah. I mean, we we definitely live in an age that pushes individual autonomy for both men and women. That includes sexual autonomy, obviously, but that then generates a whole set of other questions, right, regarding desire, regarding the complexities of sex, regarding how one behaves, you know, like the, the, the anxiety around touch that I've mentioned. So, so there are some kind of like very open questions in the book as well about how we proceed. But I wanted to make it kind of, um, yeah, like reconciliatory is the word that keeps coming back to mind. How to put, how to recognise the reality of a certain heterosociality, but also to, 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 to sort of display an image of a world in which we already get along in a way, but we can get a sort of get along in a more even more fun and interesting way without too much resentment. So that's that's the sort of overview of the book. So stop. Okay.